Welcome back to Creator Talks, the comic book writer and artist interview show. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Thank you for joining me and making this show part of your day. On this show, I'm headed back to the Great White North via Skype to have a conversation with writer Jim Zub. The first four issues of Jim's series Glitterbomb is being released as a trade paperback. Glitterbomb Volume 1 Red Carpet will be published March 1st by Image Comics and available in bookstores on March 7th. Glitterbomb is a dramatic Hollywood horror story loaded with surprises. The book is illustrated by a newcomer, Jabril Morissette Fon, an amazing new artist. Among his art credits are the all-new Wolverine for Marvel Comics, and if you have not seen his work before, I think you should check it out in Glitterbomb. You will be very impressed. Now, it just so happens that the same day the Glitterbomb trade paperback is being released, also out on March 1st is Wayward Volume 4. This is also Jim Zub's work. Best described by Image as a Buffy the Vampire for a new generation set in Japan. And speaking of which, I also asked Jim about his recent trips to Japan and his work on Samurai Jack for IDW. We also talk about Skull Kickers for Image and his contribution to the Marvel Comics series Monsters Unleashed. Jim and I had a chance to talk about all these books and more on this podcast, but fear not, there are no spoilers on the podcast. We do not get into any surprises or details if you haven't had a chance to read Glitter Bomb yet. So, here now is my interview with writer Jim Zub on Creator Talks. Toronto? Not bad. A little wet and chilly. Unseasonably kind of weird weather. Like it's up and down all the time. Uh, Normally it's just straight out cold, but the world is uh, all sorts of strange weather nowadays. So (laughs) you just roll with it. Yeah, Yeah. a lot less snow than normal. Uh, Where are you based? I'm based in Delaware. Oh, Delaware. Okay. Yeah, just like about 45 minutes from Philadelphia, and uh, we had a little bit of snow today. We haven't had much at all. Unseasonably mild, eh? Yeah. So, red carpet, glitter bomb. Yeah. First so, trade's coming out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're super stoked for it. It's it's so weird because it's like time is just feels like it's been flying. Like I feel like I just turned around, and we, uh, you know, Jabril and I have been plugging away on this thing and it's been a it's been a while since you know i mean it, there was just over a <clears throat> a year between meeting him and then kind of getting the the book uh out into the world and now you know another like six months after that <clears throat> we're we're digging in and releasing that first trade so we are uh we're thrilled about it i would think it feels good yeah yeah it's nice it's a good feeling whenever you've got that little uh, that little collection to see, you know, oh, this is a milestone. This is what we've put down, you know, and, and it just feels really nice to have that, uh, to have that in front of you as a real concrete physical thing. Uh, I can't, it's, it's just the best feeling. And I still get that excitement whenever I see, uh, one of my books, you know, it's just such a nice feeling to work with great people and to put together something that you couldn't do alone, you know? Yeah. Yeah, tell the audience about the book. I read it, and uh, it's a horror book. It's a Hollywood horror book. But uh, mm-hmm. give us the pitch on that. Well, it's it is. So it's a it's a Hollywood horror tragedy. It's sort of a um, it, it's a it's a 
bit of a dissertation on on fame and failure using Hollywood as as our object lesson. Uh, the main character is named Farah Durante. She's an actress, a middle-aged single mother actress who has struggled in her career <clears throat> and sort of come up against the you know the sort of glass ceiling that you find in Hollywood, where once you're no longer a young pretty thing, but you're not old enough to play someone's grandma. Uh, you know, you just sort of get blanked out of Hollywood and you get blanked out of that sort of system. <clears throat> and so she's had a lot of difficulties in her time and has struggled the whole way. And it sort of reached a boiling point for her. And something uh, has sort of, uh, I don't want to give anything away, but ba- basically something has reached out to her and is offering her the ability to to get revenge on sort of, you know, Hollywood's little fame machine. And uh, get a little piece of her, her own uh, fame, and and I wouldn't say success, <laughs> but let's mm-hmm. say notice uh, in the grand scheme of things, and and things sort of spin out from there. There are other characters, but she's really the motivator for the first arc and the way it all plays out. <clears throat> and without giving anything away, and we see this in the title, this is volume one, so you do plan to do more. Yeah, so we're doing like a series of mini-series. So each one it connects to the other um, and has a continuing story, but the plan is that each one can also kind of stand on its own, that, that we focus on a different character and a different sort of element of the story as it moves forward. But the the idea of fame, and really one of those the concepts that sort of uh, was the germination of the whole thing was you know, Hollywood as a as a a concept tends to sell that one in a million. They tend to sell the 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 hero of destiny and you know the very special person. That's like you know core to a lot of fiction, particularly the kind of Hollywood movie uh, fiction. And I was I I'm sort of fascinated by this idea of well, you know, if you're the one in a million, then there's nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine people who aren't special, who aren't the one, who aren't who don't get to be the ones that, that, you know, beat the odds and where do they fall and what kinds of trauma and difficulties do they go through, particularly if they have been sold this bill of goods that they can, if you just dream hard enough, if you just work hard enough, if you just keep at it, then you'll get everything you want, you know, regardless of the actual odds, regardless of, of reality coming, crushing down on you. It's so true. And you think about not just, um, you know, younger women who, as they get older, they tend to get pushed aside. Uh, they don't do so much with the men, though. Keep in mind, I mean, <clears throat> male actors still, most of them can have a pretty robust career. Uh, you know, you look at someone like, and I'm not trying to pick on him by any means, but like Harrison Ford, there was Perfect. this amazing graph where they walked through and they showed that as he got older, his co-stars were getting younger. <laughs> like like that there's there's a perfect number. Yeah. And so the Hollywood number is, and I don't think it's intentional, but just the way it worked out, you know, so because he's older, well, we'll give her an even, an even younger, you know, piece of eye candy on his arm or whatever. Like just this ridiculousness that, that he's he's still sexy as he gets to be middle-aged and a woman is just sort of, you know, pushed aside in that broader Hollywood structure. But there is an ageism as a whole, I think in Hollywood, obviously youth carries, you know, youthfulness in, in North American culture, I think is such a huge prevalent thing that our obsession with, with young fame and with, you know, uh, the energy and vitality that comes with it. And, and our fears about getting old, about not being special, about not having, all the things that we 
dreamed we would. Those are really core to kind of I think the that the the neurotic kind of feelings of of your average North American person when they get home at the end of the day, you know, and they're sold this idea of well, you live in you know the the quote best country in the world, and therefore you can get whatever you want if you work hard enough. You can get fame, you can get money, you can get satisfaction, and that's really <clears throat> what you know what we're sold or what we believe versus kind of what reality has in store for us. Yeah, and you know they're probably also Hollywood is probably also trying to appeal to a new demographic to kind of keep the machine going. Of but they leave a whole chunk behind. I mean, they put the emphasis heavily on the younger generation. And they deserve to have their own stars as well. <clears throat> but they do leave a lot behind in the way it's done. So tragically. Um, and even for the younger actors. I mean, there's plenty of stories of young actors who, once they get to a certain age, they're no longer appealing. No longer or the, or the, the particular traits that they were appealing yeah. for. That they're no longer, you know, that people, they don't know how to recast them in a different light. They don't. They don't sort of bounce back, <clears throat> and, you know. Or, but as much as Hollywood loves, uh, you know, um, something new, they also like, uh, you know, someone coming back. If you can pull off a, <clears throat> if you can reinvent yourself, if you can find some new way to push yourself back into the spotlight, you know, <clears throat> and do it well, there is that sense of okay, you can give it another shot. We'll let you roll the dice again and see if you're. Uh, able to handle the crushing expectation and whatnot. But but it, there's that weird thing, too, about fame where <clears throat> I feel like, you know, everyone likes an underdog, but the minute someone's successful, they're the first to tear you down, right? Yeah, yeah they, they want knock you them down, yeah. They want you to get big, but not too big. I mean, okay, that was enough. You, you made some money. That was cool. Oh, you were famous a little bit. Okay, don't get too cocky, you know, like – can't yeah. take it too far. Yeah. You know, one younger star that really bounced back strong and was extremely successful was Neil Patrick Harris. Mm-hmm. I mean, exactly. Old Doogie Hauser, and now, now look at him. Right? But this is a, an interesting sort of thing where, <clears throat> you know, again, even that's that weird one in a million where mm-hmm. the vast majority of people, they don't get their shot or they don't, they don't even realize that it's passed them by or, you know, <clears throat> all those different elements of it. And so it was really, for me, the germ of the story was sort of building off of some of my own fears about about failure and about those sorts of things. And then Hollywood just seemed to be this really fertile ground to explore it, that it had such <clears> – <throat> the stakes were so clear. And the idea of our obsession with fame is so much clearer in a, a TV movie kind of acting Hollywood concept uh, that it just seemed like that was the right place to explore those ideas that I was thinking about. Hmm. Yeah. Glitterbomb, and the story was great. The four thanks. issues were collected, one through four. I really enjoyed it. I, oh, you thanks. Know, I, I missed it the first time around, so when I read the trade, I was like, whoa, how did I miss this? Because I like this kind of story, a little bit of horror, a little bit of Hollywood. And one thing that really impressed me was you had some additional material in the back of the book by Holly Hughes from Exo Jane. Right. And well, the uh, first essays from Exo Jane. Okay. So. <clears throat> And the other ones are original material she did just for us. Oh, nice. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So interesting story about that. Um, I so, so Holly Rachel Hughes is a former Hollywood producer. Now she lives uh, quite far away from Hollywood and she – is a is an author and she uh she she's got she's just out of the whole fame thing whatsoever <clears throat> but when i was doing research you know i wanted the 
the Hollywood elements to feel really grounded because we're going to have this supernatural element to it. You, you, you know, I wanted everything else to feel like it was set in our real world. And so I was doing a lot of reading up on these things, like how casting works or how <clears throat> movie production really functions, just so that there wouldn't be any glaringly ridiculous stuff in there. Trying not to just play into the cliches of, of how people think movies are made and more into how they're actually, you know, behind the camera, how they function, <clears throat> how film crews function and whatnot. And so while I was reading, uh, you know, her essay, her original essay from XO Jane, all about being abused on a Hollywood set and how that would eventually drive her out of the business and how the things she thought about Hollywood versus what, how it really was. That was one of those articles I had bookmarked and read and reread. And I thought, oh, this thing's perfect. Like what I need is stuff like this because I would love to have more material and I would love to have back matter. <clears throat> My other image series, Wayward, um, which is this sort of Buffy in Japan. It's like teenagers fighting Japanese mythological monsters. Uh, we've got a lot of back matter in that book. So every issue has an essay from uh, an actual monster lore expert all about traditional Japanese monsters. Um, and that's gone over really well with our readership and it's helped our book stand out quite a bit in the market. And so I thought like, this is a cool thing. I want to have something in glitter bomb, not the exact same, but some kind of back matter, something about ideally the Hollywood stuff. <clears throat> and so when I was reading and I was looking and I thought, Oh, and I asked some around some contacts and, you know, if you're currently working in the business, you generally don't want to say terrible things about where you work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or, or, uh, really go into it. <clears throat> and so it was, it was difficult. I wasn't able to find people and I was just about to kind of give up on it, on getting that extra material. And I thought, what the heck, I'll just reach out to her. Cause you know, I, I found her name and I knew she'd authored the article that I really enjoyed. And so I reached out to her on Twitter and tried not to be creepy. I just said, look, I really, I read this, <clears throat> uh, essay you wrote and I thought it was fantastic. And I'm doing this book about, about sort of fame and failure in Hollywood. Can I send you the first issue? Uh, let you, you know, we had it done nice and early so she could read the full first issue and the outline of where we were going with the first story arc. And thankfully she responded and, uh, gave it a read and really, really enjoyed it. And so that kind of got my foot in the door that we started talking and we got on Skype and we just chatted back and forth. And I asked her originally if I could just reprint that article, if she had the rights to it. And she did. So I, I paid to reprint that article in issue one. And even before the issue was released, uh, I had sent her two and three and she loved those as well. And I sort of, you know, broached the idea of, do you, do you have other stories you want to tell or things that would fit well with this? And so we worked out a deal where she put together three brand new essays for issues two to four, sort of building off of, um, you know, stuff in that first essay. And, and I'm really happy that like the essay in issue four comes back around to the material from one. So it has a really nice circular structure and it feels very cohesive in terms of encompassing different aspects of her career and thoughts and fears and, and the difficulties that she had in the business. And I think it adds a lot of gravity to what we're doing in our fictional story. And those are all true stories. Yes, wow. absolutely. Because uh, there's a well-known actor <laughs> mentioned in that. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, these are that, they were fascinating. I started to read those late at night, and I was just like, I'll just read a little bit. I'll read one of them. <laughs> I just kept going. 
yeah. until I finished yeah, them all. The, the compliments we got for those in the reviews, you know, people were like, oh, the main story's great. And then you think the issue's over, and then you just get this extra burst of material, and people really dug it. And so I asked her if we could use them for the trade, <clears throat> because I do. I feel like they, they just give a nice, like, you know, it's easy to look at these kind of fictional stories and sort of say, yeah, but well, it's all fiction. And it's like, yeah, obviously the monster stuff's fictional. Obviously the horrific, uh, those elements are fictional, but the emotional content and the character content is very much fueled from real things. And I think it really gives it that bite. It really adds a nice bit of extra reality to the fictional aspect. And so, um, I'm glad we were able to work it all out and have her on board, uh, for the trade as well. Cause yeah, it's just, it's great. <clears throat> it's great content. And, uh, she writes really emotionally, you know, it's draining. You read some of it and you're just like, Oh, I can't believe you had to go through all this. I can't believe it's such a, a roller coaster ride of, of ups and downs, you know? <clears throat> well, when I read it after having read your comic, reading the whole trade, it kind of put me in the mindset of the character Farah, her frustration, depression, despair, and I could I would almost like say for some folks they might want to read the essays first. And then, yeah, there's no spoilers. Yeah, there. no. it's not it's not Farah's story, but it gives you the weight. <clears throat> it gives you that sense of the the hamster wheel of insanity that that it is to get one of these productions underway and the weird people you have to deal with, you know, like <clears throat> any kind of creative project requires, requires a bit of hubris, you know, and ego to sort of push it through the filter and kind of go, well, I think I have something important to say and right. I'm going to, and when you get into Hollywood where you're talking tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, well, I think I know better than everyone else. Like it's like this weird, you know, self-perpetuating, uh, um, I don't know, not insanity, but just, you know, that you have to, you have to believe in it so much in order for it to happen. But how many people are deluding themselves? How many people aren't going to get those opportunities, but they still have to have that same mindset of, oh, sure, this will be the part of my biography where I tell everyone everything bad happened until it was good. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like uh, this is, these are the hard times that I'll look back fondly on <laughs> and not realizing they will never be the highs that you hope there were, you know? Uh, yeah, that's, that's one of those things. Like I've, <clears throat> that was what really fueled the the series for me was this idea of, um, I had had some setbacks, some creative setbacks and some personal difficulties. And I sort of looked and I said, haha, this is the funny low moment before the highs to come. And then I just had this weird thought of, I bet you that's what a lot of people think. <laughs> I bet you that's what a lot of people delude themselves into thinking that the that this is temporary, that these are bad things because you're the you're the hero of your own story, right? So you can't imagine yourself being the the background player loser who never gets anything, you know? Right. And and that's that was sort of the impetus for this thing of saying, "Wait a minute, what if I'm not the star? What if I'm, you know, dead guy at the side of the road 12, you know, in the, in the credits, like, <laughs> or whatever, like what it would, if I don't have a big role to play in, in the story, in any story, what if I'm just this frustrated person always on the outside? How does that feel? What is that? What does that do to you? If you, if you actually come to that realization? Yeah, it's all a very, very important part of the story. And when the horror element kicks in, 
it just like grabbed me and shook me. I, I didn't see that coming. It, oh, thanks. I won't, I won't spoil anything. I'm just going to say right. folks are in for a surprise. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a very emotional, personal it's, type story, but it goes another direction a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and, and it was also a very different – so I don't know how much of my other comics you've read, but it's very against type for me. Like I'm used to writing uh, adventure stories, action stories – a lot of uh, kind of fun, poppy kind of comedy. Uh, I write action comedy. I write a lot of banter in most of my books. And this was really an exercise in trying to channel something very different <clears throat> and see if I could give it the same kind of attention that I have with stuff that tends to come more easily to me. Because I feel like that's you know the way to stretch my own uh, skills. And so I said to myself, I've, I've written horror-like concepts and short stories and things but i've never done an actual comic and i've never really taken it to see if i could do it at at this level of finished work okay i'm gonna try and do something really dark something really visceral and something that people wouldn't expect from me and even if i fail as an experiment i think it has value you know what i mean like that this is can you you know switch switch the script can you switch what people expect from you and yourself and so i said i'm going to channel these emotions i'm going to pick this type of subject matter and see if i can give it uh, you know do something worthy with it and uh finding the right artist was a big part of that and really driving that you know forward and then getting such a good response to it was really gratifying and it felt great to know that you know, we'd uh, really struck something that that people could empathize with. Well, tell me about your artist. How you met? Uh, I want to say Morissette because I don't want to butcher his name. It's Jabril. <laughs> so you, the the D and the J just kind of mush together. Okay. So you just say Jabril. Jabril. Uh, right. Yeah, he's uh, uh, French. He lives in Montreal. Um, wonderful, wonderful artist, and incredibly young. I don't know if you knew that. He is now 22. Oh, wow. He Good started for him. writing a book. He was 21. Hmm. And you wouldn't know it because the book has got such confidence. He is honestly one of the most skilled young artists I've ever seen, where he, he feels very fully formed. He doesn't. And so I teach, uh, when I'm not writing comics, I teach at an art college here in Toronto. And uh, I see lots and lots of students, and I see hundreds of portfolios every year. <clears throat> and this, you know, and I say this fondly, like this kid, uh, he is uh, just so rock solid and feels so fully formed as an artist in a way that I have almost never seen at his age before. Uh, so, so impressed. <clears throat> I was at, um, it's 2015, the summer, and I'm at Montreal Comic Con. Uh, I'd never been to the show before. They had invited me out. It was very nice. And um, a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Marguerite Savage. So she's done art on the DC Bombshells book. She's done a bunch of covers for different things. She's just a wonderful person and an incredible artist. I had met her, thanks to the power of Twitter, um, and she had done an alt cover for Wayward for me on our fifth issue. And so we had stayed in touch and She's just a great person. My wife and I had gone to Montreal on a little shopping trip, and we had met up with her for lunch, and just just good people. <clears throat> and so I come down for the Comic-Con, 
And uh, just before the show starts on the first day, she comes over to my table and she asks if she can, you know, introduce me to a friend of hers, this uh, young boy named Jabril, who he had graduated. He was about to graduate from art school and uh, he was he'd sort of gotten a table in the corner at the studio where the, the shared studio space that she was working and there were a bunch of other pro artists there. And so he was just kind of. He was there at the studio trying to, you know, improve his craft. And she asked me, she said, oh, you're an art teacher. You know, would you be willing to give uh, my friend a, a portfolio critique? And it, I mean, it's a really loaded statement because portfolio critique is this weird element where you, everyone kind of goes into it with different expectations. Some people want a really hard, thorough critique. Some people just want you to compliment them and make them feel good. Some people think they want the former, but they actually want the latter. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's intense. And so you've got the pressure of, I'm meeting someone who I don't know. Their good friend of mine has asked me to do this for them. And if the work is not good, how much critique do I give? How thorough do I go? What is this? What can this person take? Do you know what I mean? Like, you want to be honest with someone, but you also need to curb it based yeah. on what, yeah, it's like. You don't want to crush them. You got it, right? And and particularly if I'm at school and this is one of my students, I'm going to have an ongoing relationship with them. I can build them back up if I if I crush them a little bit. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. we're going to have multiple conversations about their work. So if I'm hard one time, I can build them up another time. But if all I get with you is five minutes at a convention and your only interaction with me is ever is like Jim was a dick to me, uh, it's a hard – you know, that, that doesn't leave a good impression on anybody. It doesn't feel good on anyone. So <clears throat> I go into this thing like kind of nervous because I just don't want to screw up and I don't want this kid to feel bad or whatever. And I come over and I look at his portfolio and it blows my mind. Like it's just unbelievably good. And so my first instinct is, oh, the kid inked someone else's pencils <laughs> because the, the, the it's work polished. Is, it's very it's polished. so polished. And so he's, you know, I knew he was at the studio with Marguerite and with Yannick Paquette and all these other awesome artists. I'm like, oh, he's inking over someone else's stuff. These are great inks. You know, like, like that's, that's great. You're, you know, so I sort of started talking about the inks and I talked about how well they were put together. And, and I said, you know, who did the pencils? And he looked at me and he goes, oh, these are mine. And I was like, whoa, Okay. And so I thought, well, great. Okay, he clearly knows what professional quality is, but um, you know, how long did this take him? Like, did he work a week on each page? You know what I mean? In a real production environment, he's going to have to do like oh, yeah. a page every you know two days, probably, or even or you know faster potentially. And so I said, well, how long did they take you? And he goes, you know, I can do usually a page or two a day. And I went, okay, don't lie, because. <laughs> If you do, someone's going to hold you to that. If you tell an editor an unrealistic deadline, they will hold you to it and then you will look unprofessional when you can't deliver. And he got – like he laughed and he was like, no, no, I swear, I swear. <laughs> and, and Marguerite was like, no, he really does. I watch him do it. And I said, OK, well, here's my critique. Uh, we should do a book. That's my critique. You want to do a book? <laughs> I know people an image. Uh, I really love this stuff. I think that you've really got something here and I want to be the first person to, to, to collaborate with you on something. And he was just blown away and Marguerite was thrilled, obviously. And, uh, we started talking from there 
And so I had to wrap up a couple other projects and things I was working on. But within a few months, we had started uh, developing. I had had Glitterbomb sort of in my roster of ideas. I've always got like a, a little, you know, a folder full of scrap material and, and brainstorming and things I want to develop. And I was pretty sure that was the one. But I, I sort of sent him a little kind of like little mini pitches, like three or four sentence kind of overviews. This story would be about this. This story would be about that. And I made sure Glitterbomb was on the top of that pile. And he he really attached to it like I hoped he would. And so that really was the impetus to take it from the back burner to, all right, let's do this thing. And um, I put the pitch together. And the pitch was, originally I told him, we're going to do three pages for the pitch. And we'll probably end up redrawing those once we figure out where it's going to fit in the story. But we're not going to do the first three pages of the story. We're just going to do three cool pages to show Eric Stevenson at Image what the book would look like. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not starting uh, at the beginning, but just somewhere in the book. You know, so, yeah, like some, yeah, like sometimes preview pages are the first three pages, but I see other publishers are putting out like just three random pages. So you're not really giving anything away. You're not starting at the very beginning. But what I, you know, the good thing is, is that I have a relationship at Image. I've done multiple books there, so they know that I can get a book done to professional quality. I just need to show them this artist is going to do this approach, huh. and it's the story essentially. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so uh, I say I, I wrote a moment, which was Farah meeting with her agent, and then uh, something horrific happens, which you know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote that scene, and he drew it. Literally, he drew those three pages in two days. Wow. And those are the the first three pages of the book. Like I said, don't we're those we're keeping those. And that's now the opening of the book because it's so visceral and it's so powerful and it's so perfect. And and I had a fifteen minute meeting with Eric Stevenson. I walk in the door, I think it was less than six minutes. And Eric looked at the pages, I gave him the skinny pitch, and he said, Yep. Looks great. Let's do it. And so we had like nine minutes to just chill. <laughs> and like, how are you? How's your family? Kind of stuff. Because it was just undeniable. You know, the quality was there and the pitch was, uh, you know, seemed all clear. And Eric just gave it the green light right there on the spot. And so I felt like a wizard because I got back from New York Comic Con and I said, yeah, okay, we're doing a book and image. And Jabril was like, whoa, that was fast. And I was like, not as fast as how you did those pages, you know, (laughs) and we were just off and running. And so, um, he just, you know, tore into it. And that really, once you've got that green light, once you know, you're doing a a project, you start getting that momentum and different people work at different speeds, but Jabril is so responsible and so on top of stuff, I would send him script and he would just be tearing into it. And so I would be getting pages back within a day or two of sending him a new script and that would drive me. I got to get ahead again. Like I feel like I'm in a good way being chased. Like I've got to, you know, hold uphold my end of the bargain, make sure he's got great material to work with. And so it, it's a nice, when you're in that flow, you're getting, you know, uh, line art from, from the artist, you're getting colors, you're getting lettering. There's this constant influx of material that you wrote, you know, weeks earlier and you just feel like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm at the front of the queue. I'm giving script, and we're all working towards this end goal. I've, I got to make sure I keep delivering so that you guys keep doing this incredible 
stuff. So like I'm simultaneously, it's like you're, you're, you're kind of in charge, but you're also kind of just letting this, this thing roll. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, how do you guys work together? But you just told me, and uh, he's got two things going for him that you really got to have as an artist, especially in comics. He's good and he's fast. He's got mm-hmm. both of those. Cause I mean, some people yeah. have one, not the other. I know. I know. And that was the crazy part was, uh, I would, I would, you know, joke with people that, that like, I, you know, I need to keep up with him because I'm juggling multiple writing projects. Right. So you can fall into this lapse where you're like, well, it's obviously a lot faster for me to write a page than it is for him to draw one. But even still, I would, by the time I would sort of go through my rotation, he would always be, you know, pretty caught up to where I was at. And so I'm like, okay, gotta, gotta dig in. If there's something, you know, I think, um, Early on when I was writing comics, I got really wigged out by that feeling of needing to turn on the tap, like being like, okay, I have to be productive and that you can sort of psych yourself out with that feeling of, but what if I'm not inspired? But what if it's not the best I could do? And I think that's the the sort of difference between like a, once you hit that professional level where you say, this is the day that I have to do this. I will do it and you can actually sort of get yourself over the mental hump of of being productive rather than waiting for the muses to kiss your fingertips. I think that that's a it's a good place to kind of be and Jabril's productivity helps me to do that where I would just be like I can't wait. He you know, he's going to be done in the next few days and he, he doesn't I you know, he doesn't deserve to wait. So I've got to get on top of this and make sure it's as good as I can do. You know, that's, I think, another reason why I enjoyed the book so much. It was excellently written and excellently drawn, like both. You know, sometimes I don't always get both of the book. Like, I really like the story, but the art, nah, it's okay. Right. And sometimes right. vice versa. But you guys <laughs> almost have sort of a, a Lennon and McCartney matchup where it's kind of a push and pull. You know, you're trying to keep up with each other. Yeah, and what, what I liked about it was... You know, in any um, creative relationship, and it's different for every creative team I've been a part of, but you want to have that kind of – everyone needs to be able to put something into it. I'm not casting lightning bolts from on high. You know, like I I am offering a plot and dialogue and and trying to get an artist inspired to draw something cool, but I want them to put some of themselves into it. I want them to – in in the animation business, they call it plussing, that at every stage of production, you're plussing, you're adding something cool, not taking it away, that I'm not here to make you look weaker, I'm here to make us better. And and the best teams do that, that they exemplify each other. And so it's this weird thing where I would, you know, I would talk to him after we finished the first issue, and I said, what are, is there anything missing that you want more of? And one of the things he said to me, he goes, I love drawing city scenes, like big pulled back shots, which made me laugh because most artists hate that. Yeah. They hate big perspective stuff. They hate doing little tiny windows and streets and cars. And he's like, I love that stuff. And so there's that scene in issue two where they're um, uh, uh, Dean and, and Farah are on the balcony and they're looking out over the city and they, yes. they clink their beers. Mm-hmm. And I literally wrote that into the issue as like an indulgent thing for him to draw. <laughs> and it ended up being one of my favorite moments in the series because it it's a, a moment of stillness and camaraderie before we get into some nasty emotional stuff. And so it was the the weird sort of breath before someone starts screaming. Like it's this calm 
and and it the issue needed it and I wouldn't have even thought to put it in there until he specifically asked for something to play to his strengths. And so those are the kinds of, you know, those happy accidents that I feel like I knew that we were on a really good uh you know, synchronicity there. No, that's awesome. You have an artist asking for more complex yes. pages to draw versus a splash page, an action page with just a couple of figures, wanting to do all that background work, which really, I mean, truly does add to the story, but oh, it takes sure, a lot of work. Well, it was funny too, because I told other artists that and they just swear at me. It's like, <laughs> you bet, don't take that for granted, Zubkovich. Like, you know, <laughs> that's not normal. And I'm like, oh, I know, trust me. <laughs> and I, don't, I wouldn't normally wish that on anyone. You know, Stephen Cummings, the guy who draws Wayward, he's drawing these Tokyo cityscapes and uh, he does just beautiful work uh, as well. But it's funny too, because people would say to me, where do you find these artists? They all like drawing crazy complicated stuff and i just i really do feel very fortunate that the collaborators that i've i've worked with the vast majority of them are like they yeah they seem to to turn towards the tough stuff rather than you know kind of turn away from it as you mentioned you're a really busy guy you're writing multiple books and wayward um that's another creator and series of yours yep at image yeah and the trades coming out the same day as twitter bomb yeah, sometimes it's funny. The publishing end of things, you're planning in some cases a year and a half, uh, or or you know anywhere from nine months to a year and a half out. You're sort of building your publishing schedule, and so with each year, I feel like we get a little bit better at spacing some of this stuff out. And a really valuable part of the year is the convention season. If I've got new books and I bring those to shows. Obviously, I'm going to do better than if I'm bringing the same stuff I had last year. And so I literally stacked the deck because I wanted both trades, the first Glitter Bomb trade and the fourth Wayward trade, to come out the week of Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle because it's a it's sort of the first big show of the year for me. So that means I've got those books as I'm starting convention season and I'll be able to carry them throughout the summer. And it also means that I'm kind of launching big for my convention season and just selfishly, I love having them at that show. It's a great show. It's a great crowd of people. And so I kind of built the publishing schedule for them backwards uh, from, from March to make sure that we would be able to deliver those books on that date. Smart. Yeah. I like that. It's nice. It's nice to have those goals in mind. It would be, it was funny. I was, uh, Steven lives in Japan. So we jump on Skype, uh, every other month, maybe we used to do it every month, but now we're pretty crazy. So every other month we'll jump on Skype and we talk schedule. And last night I was talking to him about like 2018 and all this stuff. And he was, his head was just swimming. (laughs) And I said, no, it all works because we're going to do this and then this and then this. And he was like, okay, like, I trust you. Just tell me the deadlines. (laughs) You know, and that's sort of my my part of the equation as well. With a creator-owned book, I'm not just writing it. I'm trying to sort of project manage it as well. Which came first, Glitter Bomb or Wayward? Because that's on issue 20 just came out. Oh, yeah. No, Wayward came out in uh, – I hope I get the dates right. 2014. Okay. uh, Late 2014. And then Glitter Bomb launched uh, uh, – well, 2016, last year. So, you know, Wayward Book 4 is coming out. And that's been a ton of fun to do. And it's, yeah, Glitter Bomb's my third image book. The previous one I did to those two was a book called Skull Kickers, okay. which was a, a fantasy comedy. Uh, so very, very different than both of them. And uh, it's sword and sorcery, or sword and sassery, if you will. 
it's uh, it's good fun and that's sort of like that was what people kind of knew me for was this kind of action comedy sort of element or sword and sorcery stuff in particular and both wayward and glitter bomb have worked well to i think sort of show people i've got a bit more range and you said wayward is basically at least the first arc was buffy in japan but you went another direction um the next arc dealt with a generation divide in japan yeah so we we started off i wanted a really simple hook and the hook was teenagers fighting Japanese supernatural monsters. I love, uh, they're called yokai in Japan. I love yokai stories and I love Japanese myths. And Steven and I developed the series together from the ground up, basically just playing into a bunch of things we really loved and, and just going for it with gusto. So he wanted to do a story set in Tokyo. I wanted to do a story about modern mythology and we both like yokai stuff. So we're like, all right, let's do this. And maybe no one will like it, but we're going to do it and see what happens. And thankfully, we found a a really cool audience that loves it. And so we started digging in and making this book together. Um, And uh, yeah, that launched in in 2014. And our 20th issue just came out, um, you know, uh, last week. So we're uh, we're thrilled with uh, the response to it. So the collection is going to be at the same time, start of March and uh, having a ball working on that with him. And it's a very different kind of working relationship where Glitter Bomb was much more fully, like kind of, uh, I brought a lot of the story stuff and, and Jibril designed a lot for it visually, but I sort of had the story pretty fully formed. Whereas with Wayward, Steve and I are both developing sort of the overall plot and the characters. And then I'm, you know, sort of the forward momentum on actually scripting it and, and making, you know, those story decisions. But we both got a little more kind of plot input. It's also Steve lives in Japan, so he's able to bring a lot of visceral immediacy to it. You know, he'll let me know if I'm off base with certain cultural things or uh, just a real subtle stuff in the series, too. Everything from locations to language to culture to the visuals to food, everything. You know, he really brings it all in there. Well, you're a, a student, a fan of Japanese culture, and uh, you also worked on Samurai Jack for IDW. You did some writing yep. for that, and that's coming back to Cartoon Network soon. Yeah, yeah. So we, um, I was uh, really fortunate to work on the comic series that that was, uh, you know, officially endorsed by Gendy Tartakovsky and Cartoon Network. So, and that was a, an amazing thing to be a part of. Andy Suriano, who was the main artist on the comic series, he helped design the show with Gendy. And so he was already attached to do the art on the series. And they had asked a bunch of different people to pitch on it. And so mine was just sort of uh, one of, I don't know how many, what I, from what I've been told, many pitches but I guess mine was the one that stood out to Cartoon Network and Andy and Gendy, and they um, they asked me to, to to take it on, and so we ended up doing 20 issues of new Samurai Jack stories that picked up where the show left off, and it was just an absolute blast. And that what was great was we kept thinking that was gonna like we did five issues, and that was sort of my original commitment. And the response was really great. And they were like, do you want to do five more? And I was like, yeah, it'd be an absolute pleasure. And so every five issues, I would sort of write it as if I had to end it. 
Like I would sort of say, well, if this is my last five, I'm going to blow it out and do something crazy. And then they would say, do you want to do five more? All right. And then I would, you know, <laughs> the fifth issue of that, I'd blow it out and do something crazy because I'm like, maybe this is my last one. And, you know, it was funny too because I just felt like as we were – getting ready to plan out 20 i thought oh yeah now i could go forever i feel so comfortable and then they're like okay we're gonna wrap it up with 20 and i was like oh okay i totally get it and it's no problem uh but i'm as excited as anyone to see the new episodes coming in march it's going to be a, a blast i wonder if you'll be writing any of those i d- i don't have any involvement in the production okay. Okay. Of, the, of the cartoon i you know that would have have been incredible but gendy has had his own uh story ideas because this is from everything i know this is the end like they're doing a, a a final series of episodes and they're pretty tightly wound okay and so this wasn't something where they were looking for outside input like gendy is is developing this personally from the you know the ground up and so i'm very very honored to be you know even remotely involved with the property and uh, to help keep the series visible as they were transitioning to make the new stuff, you know, and that's really, that, that is the best, you know, just such a good feeling. And the response we got from fans, uh, that really, really loved the comic and, and that felt like we did it justice. And, you know, for a series that the animation is so core to what that series was, the way it moves and the music and the voices. And we had to try and, make that work on the still page and that I, you know, that people felt like we did it right. That means the world to me. No, that's great. And I, you know, I'm glad it's coming back for another season, even if it's the last one to kind of wrap things up because when it ended last time, it didn't end where they wanted it to. No, no, not at all. Right. They, they, I, from what I know, the team, uh, you know, financially the series was always on sort of rocky ground and they had that chance to do the clone wars, uh, cartoon, the star mm-hmm. Wars one. Yep. And so the production crew moved over to that and they spent way more time on it than anyone expected. And it was like the band broke up. It was like, as clone wars was, was going, people left and moved on to other projects. And all of a sudden it was like Samurai Jack just moved further and further back in terms of when they were going to be able to do it until all of a sudden everyone's careers are in different places and you know you, you don't know when you're going to be able to make it a priority again and then all of a sudden Gendy's doing um uh Hotel Transylvania and uh, he was supposed to do Popeye at one point like it you know other opportunities uh present themselves and you've got to try and balance it all out now, since we're on the topic of Japan you mm-hmm. not too long ago took a trip to Japan yeah, and yeah. I, I would love it if you would share some about it because I've always wanted to go there. I don't know when I ever get the chance right now with kids and everything, but I'd, totally I'd love to know, you know, what it's like. It's incredible. So I've been to Japan uh, seven times. Oh wow! Look uh, at you. Yeah, yeah. I uh, the first I used to work for the Udon Studio, which uh, a group of artists based here in Toronto that do artwork for video games and and toys and comics and movies and all sorts of stuff. And so originally I was working as a, as a project manager and art director there. And so my boss would go to Japan if he could, uh, you know, twice a year. And so I went uh, a few times with him on business trips and loved it. Um, you know, just an incredible experience, but didn't get a chance to do a lot of touristy stuff because we were always, you know, we were on a timeline and we had to do business and whatnot. And so the first time I was able to go kind of for fun, there was a group of us that went, it was soon after I got engaged 
a group of my friends were going for one of them was going for business stuff and the rest of us kind of piggybacked on his trip and we turned it into this like bizarre um almost like a bachelor party that lasted a week and a half like it was just crazy uh it was great we had a wonderful time and got you know just bonded and all that kind of thing um the next time i went was with my wife and we went for our honeymoon uh just over a year after we got married and that was wonderful great trip and we really both wanted to go back on a more uh, on a longer basis something more extensive and so the germ was sort of put into place there after our honeymoon where we were like okay next time we come we're gonna go for a while like we want to really get into you know like see more and and not just casually sort of skim the surface and doing wayward gave me the opportunity that if I go, I can write off part of the trip's expenses as research because it is. And so we planned for over two years, we had planned this sabbatical trip. Um, my teaching schedule had opened up over last summer. And so there was the opportunity I would be able to get away. And so we went for six weeks. So we stayed in Tokyo for a month and we had uh, sort of like a, one of these corporate hotel apartments for a month and then we toured around to multiple stops um so we went to uh, you know kyoto and we went to um uh osaka um we went to kinosaki and uh we went to uh, uh okunoshima which is the the infamous what they call the bunny island uh which was really amazing um we we just went all over the place it was so great and it was this weird feeling where we were hitting so many different locations that it just sort of felt kind of normal. Like being in Japan, you, we breached that weird barrier where you you don't feel like you're home, but you also feel like this is all very familiar now. Especially Tokyo. We were able to really get into a nice groove there where you're not on vacation that every day has to be tourist stuff. But we could have down days where we're just like, oh, it's raining out. Okay, let's – Let's hang in. Let's watch a movie and then walk through the park or go to the mall. Or like you don't feel like every day has to be the ultimate tourist experience because because you're, you've got 40 more days. You know what I mean? And so that was kind of a really nice feeling was feeling like we weren't in a rush, like we didn't have to hit everything all at once. Uh, we were in Osaka for multiple days as well and so the first day there's that newness of it and we're all running around and taking it all in and then you just eased into this nice feeling of oh this is a really nice place let's let's go back to that bar or let's you know uh let's see this area we haven't gone to before let's take our time and so that was it, it we both uh just thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it and it really gave me a greater appreciation for stuff that although I had done research and I had put it into wayward to really internalize some of it and feel like, okay, you know, when Steve tells me about certain cultural isms that I've read about and he's sort of giving me a little bit more information on, and now I'm kind of seeing it firsthand or I'm kind of experiencing little bits and pieces of it. It feels that much more visceral to us. And, you know, the hospitality was wonderful. The food is wonderful. Um, the, the, the difference between when we went for our honeymoon versus, going this past summer was really quite a watershed change. The country has seen an explosive growth in its tourism. 
a lot more people are going to Japan than have ever gone for vacations. And I think Facebook has played a big role in that because it's one of those countries that people feel like, oh, I could never do that or that would be so hard. But when you see photos of your friends or family doing it and they're having a great time, I think it really internalizes that. Well, if they can do it, I can do it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that doesn't seem so bad, let alone the resources that are available for travelers now are so much more extensive and they're getting more and more. Um, the Olympics are happening in Japan in 2020. And so the city has been on a constant uh, sort of building process to put together resources for travelers. They don't, they're not doing it all last minute. They're very much rolling stuff out in a, in a methodical fashion. So if you go there now, it's so much easier to get around uh, as someone who doesn't speak Japanese very well. Um, it's so much easier to, to navigate. It's so much easier to interact with the city and the, the, the people of Tokyo were that much more, uh, communication was that much easier. You know, when we went six years ago for our honeymoon, communication was okay, but there would be a lot of moments where we would sort of be like, uh, okay, we're just fudging it because I can't figure this thing out. <laughs> or we would do all of our planning in our hotel because that was where we had internet. And then once we got outside, we're like, I think we're still going the right way. But now, like, you know, Wi-Fi is everywhere and Google Maps is everywhere. And even Google Translate is unbelievably powerful. We So we rented this little thing. It's called a portable Wi-Fi. And it's about half the size of your cell phone. And it gives off a really strong um, internet signal. And you subscribe to it like you would a, a phone or whatever. And so we had powerful internet everywhere we went. So I can just on the fly pull up a Google map and figure out where we are. Or my wife had made custom Google maps with overlays of tourist spots or shopping places or restaurants that she had read about. So if we were ever bored or we were in a neighborhood and we didn't feel like we had a direction, we could just pull up a map and she'd go, oh, we go four blocks this way and there's this <laughs> cultural thing that – wanted to do she even shared those maps online and some of our friends have downloaded them and used them because she was really methodical about her planning um or google translate you can actually take photos of uh of kanji or or hiragana or katakana and it'll translate it on the fly from me from a photo wow and so the the translation is not going to be nuanced it's not going to be poetic but if you just need to know whether or not something has mushrooms in it on the menu or if something, you know, it'll tell you, it'll give you the, 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 the overview of it. And so all of a sudden you're not, you're not afraid of being in a country where you don't speak the language. You're not afraid of, of, yeah. of unexpected little things or, or literally going off the beaten path, just going down a street and just go, you know, the previous trip we would always stick to our maps because we didn't want to get lost. And now this time we went over the summer and we're like, that looks neat. Let's go over there. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the best part. Yeah, the exploring. And, the, and and again, because we weren't on a tight timeline, there was also that sense of, well, that's what we did today. That's cool because that thing we wanted to do, we can leave till tomorrow or next week. You know. So. Did you see any evidence of the generational divide while you were over there? Um, you see it in the language for sure. Like mm. if you were ever in a situation where you couldn't communicate with someone, you just look for a teenager because they learn English <laughs> almost 
universally in school because it's such a powerful thing for them. It's not only cool, but it's culturally relevant and it taps into a lot of the stuff that they like. You know what I mean? Whether it's Hollywood, mm-hmm. the West, or, or what may have you. And so uh, you see a lot of that there. You also see the the, the cities are changing. You know, those North American priorities of I guess this ties back to Glitterbomb. How perfect of fame and youth and and obsession with the individual is clashing up against. Um, the traditional and very family-oriented kind of Japan of old, and it and it's changing the culture in subtle and not so subtle ways. And so, in North American culture is having a big influence all over the world, but in Asian countries in particular, you can see the clash of those traditional values versus North American values or those ideas of community versus self. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of fascinating. And that's one of the things we, we talk about in Wayward, not in a preachy way and not in, even in a judgmental way, more of saying this is happening rather than being like, this is good or this is bad. You know, it just is. It's a, it's a force for change and you, you're caught in the maelstrom of it. You know, the world is going through tumultuous times and we are you know, living in it. And so as much as Japan or China or whatever, these other countries are trying to, they would love to shut some of this stuff out with a connected world now. And so we're all, we're all in it together, you know? Yeah. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I did want to get a chance to ask you about other things that you're working on this, which is why you're so busy. Um, You're also working on Thunderbolts Mm -hmm. and uh, Avengers Monsters Unleashed. Yeah, that just came out as well. I had a crazy week last week. Um, so I did this Avengers special. Uh, working at Marvel's been an absolute joy. Uh, grew up reading Marvel superhero stuff and and the old GI Joe comics and whatnot. And so being in the mix and working on those books has been uh, just pure pleasure. The the team I'm working with. It's actually a little bit. It was really intimidating at first because. My editor on Thunderbolts originally was Tom Bravort, and he's uh, one of the longest, if not the longest-running editor at Marvel. And he, he was an editor on books when I was a kid. Like, I distinctly remember reading books in the 80s where he was the editor on it. And now, you know, we just yap on the phone or, you know, talk at conventions, and I do stories with him. And, like, that there was a surreal kind of element to that once I started doing the work over there, but he's been great about um, giving me really great feedback without trying to stifle ideas. And he's very much open to uh, brainstorming and us collectively coming to put together a story that we're all proud of, you know, and that that's an awesome feeling. And that's the kind of collaboration you want to have particularly in a work for hire environment. And so Thunderbolts has been a real joy. And uh, Alana, who's taken over as the editor, she used to be the assistant on the book. She's now the full editor. She's been great as well. And so both of them, we've got a great working relationship. And when the Monsters Unleashed stuff was sort of being pulled together, they asked me if I wanted to be in the mix. And Mark Wade is doing the the main Avengers series, Mm -hmm. and his schedule's just packed. And so... Uh, he he bowed out on doing the special, and they asked me if I wanted to pick up the torch on it. And you know, it's the Avengers. 
yeah, I'm there. You know, so had an absolute ball working on it. Oh, you're living the dream. <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, from what I've been told, it's been well received. And uh, the gang at Marvel seem happy with the work I'm doing. So I'm hopeful that there's going to be uh, more good stuff coming down the pipe. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, just to circle back, mm-hmm. we're talking today about Glitter Bomb. Red yeah. Carpet Volume 1, which comes out on March 1st in comic book stores. Also wayward, March 1st. They're both yeah. the same day. And I think they're available in bookstores like on the 7th, not too long thereafter. Yeah, usually a week after. That's okay. the, the tendency. And if people want to find out anything else about what I'm writing, or if they want to read tutorials on how to write comics, I actually have quite a few articles on my website. People can go to jimzub.com, just J-I-M-Z-U-B.com. And they'll get a a pretty good rundown of what I'm up to and also how to pitch a story, how to build a press list, how to structure a script and and what publishers are looking for. Excellent. Well, Jim, I really appreciate you spending this time with me to talk about Glitter Bomb and uh, making my reading pile even higher now. Awesome. (laughs) Take in on everything. I have to read Wayward and I have to go back and read Samurai Jack and Monsters Unleashed. (laughs) You know, it's all good. Just just tell them I sent you. Jim, thanks so much. My pleasure. And that's my interview with Jim Zub. And just a reminder that Glitter Bomb Volume 1, Red Carpet, will be on sale March 1st, as well as Volume 4 of Wayward, also published by Image Comics. And I already have another interview in the can. I think you're all going to be really excited to hear. It has wide mass appeal, and it harkens back to the days of 70s television and some of the superheroes we saw on TV. So look for that interview coming up very, very soon. And if there's anyone you'd like to hear on the show, either a writer or an artist in comics, drop me a note. There are a few different ways to reach me with comments and suggestions. One way is through Facebook, at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. Also on Twitter, at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. If you prefer email, you can go to my website. There's a contact form. You can reach me at my website, creatortalks.com. That's creatortalks.com. There you will find past interviews on video written interviews, as well as my blog posts, which are tied to the podcast themselves, and they are also suggestions for books that I've read that you may like. This is neither a, a thumbs up or thumbs down type of review, a, a good or bad, it's just one man's opinion, something I found about the book that struck a chord with me, resonated with me, and I thought you might like to read as well, so it's for your consideration to add to your reading list. Now, I know you have a lot of podcasts to choose from and very little time to listen to them, and for taking the time to listen to this one, I thank you. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.